Well, welcome back, everyone, to the Peds Ortho podcast. I am uh, thrilled to uh, be bringing the July episode to you all. We have uh, Ben Shore as our guest from uh, Boston Children's Hospital. Uh, welcome, Ben. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. And um, this is uh, Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt Children's, and I'm here with my uh, with my hosts as always. So maybe we'll uh, introduce each other. Go ahead, Carter. Hey everyone, this is Carter Clement from the Children's Hospital in beautiful Uptown New Orleans. And this is Josh Holt coming from University of Iowa. I feel like you guys are always working on your charismatic radio voices there. That was good. Carter, I'm giving, I'm giving you I'll the I'll do the charismatic on one. one next time. <laughs> so this month's episode is sponsored by Depew Synthes Spine. There will be uh, advertisement from them later on in the episode. And I just want to thank them for their support of POSNA and the podcast. Um, so, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit, uh, to Ben here and get to know him a little bit and then, uh, get talking about some recent papers of his Julia should be joining us shortly. So, um, Ben, I don't know, um, much of your life story other than kind of what's published online other, other than I do recall seeing you in maybe a Toronto Maple Leafs Jersey a time or two. And so, um, I have to presume you are a Canadian born and yeah. uh, would you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and, uh, how you got to be where you're at? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, Canadian born. I uh, um, grew up in Toronto, um, did my high school there. And then um, I went to university on the other side of Canada in Victoria because I played rugby a lot. Uh, that was my other sport. Uh, so there's a pretty strong program on the West Coast. So I played rugby there. Um, and then somewhere in the middle of that, I decided I was getting hurt too much because I was quite small and I decided maybe I should do something with my brain. So I, uh, applied to med school and, um, I came back to London, Ontario, which is about two hours from Toronto and two hours from Detroit. And that's where I did med school and residency. And then I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, uh, in terms of, subspecialty stuff, but I knew I wanted to spend a year in Australia just because it's pretty common for Canadians and Australians to, to flip back and forth during training. There's tons of Australian fellows with us. And uh, I just thought it would be cool to go for the year. I wasn't sure where I wanted to go. And then as I kind of like went through my training, it, it, I just got a real unique opportunity in my fourth year to have uh, to participate in this gate course in Calgary just by chance. And um, Kerr Graham was in the lunch line and I just met him because I just thought he's, a, he's the, the guest speaker. So I thought I should say hi. So I said hi to him. And Jason Howard was there who was hosting the course. And he was like, oh, yeah, Ben's a good guy. And Kerr was like, you know, do you want to do a fellowship? And I was like, oh, yeah, that would be awesome. And that was kind of how it started. This was like before matches and stuff like that. And I didn't know anything about CP. So on, I remember on the plane ride, I wanted to go surf. So on the plane ride to Melbourne, I just was like reading as much about CP as I could. And then after Melbourne, I was going to go to San Diego, uh, but the guys in San Diego had accepted me for fellowship and then they took it away because I was Canadian um, and I couldn't get the right visa to do the practice, independent practice that they do. And so I was scrambling and I don't know what happened, but somehow the Boston guys liked me or there's a spot because it wasn't a match so it was just rolling and so went to melbourne and then came back and went to boston and uh, it was great and um when i was in melbourne i met my wife in the operating room she's a pediatric dentist from canada also and so when i came back to boston they offered her a job there so then she was like i'm not leaving so you gotta <laughs> figure this out we were still 
kind of girlfriend, boyfriend at the time, but trying to figure out what we were doing. So she got the job in Boston when I was a fellow. And then she was like, I'm not leaving. So you better figure it out. So I said to Casser, Hey, is there any way I can stay? And he was like, yeah, hundred percent. We like you. And that was the rest of it. You know? So that's incredible. Long winded story, but uh, chance meeting in the lunch line for your fellowship and then chance meeting for your wife, another Canadian in Australia. Yeah. You know, that's serendipity. Yeah, I think for trainees, you just you don't know uh, what's going to happen in your life. You might think you have a plan, but um, if you close off too many opportunities ahead of time, um, those opportunities won't present themselves to you. So you just got to be open minded and be willing to be flexible because things happen for a reason and you just got to be able to roll with the punches, so to speak. Are fellowships not as common coming out of orthopedic residency uh, if you're Canadian trained? It sounds like you weren't committed to doing a fellowship other than you wanted to travel. Um, is yeah, well, that pretty common or? Well, I think so. Canadians have an inferiority complex in general. So like we think we're not as good as everybody else. So most Canadians do two fellowships, partly because we think we're not that good. And partly because there's such a strong competition for work back home that it's hard to get a job. Um, there's too many trainees, not enough job opportunities. And so I knew I was once I decided I was going to do peds, I knew I was going to have to probably do a couple years. I just didn't know what in peds I wanted to do. And then the Kerr thing just kind of really kind of fell into my lap. Um, I really did not think at the time when I was applying for fellowships that I'd be a CP surgeon right now. So it's just kind of funny how life flips around. Well, let's, um, let's do a few more get to know you sort of things. What are your top three cases? Oh, wow. Uh, top three cases. Um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the split tib and transfer. It's just like a pretty nice split tib and or even tib post through the interosseous membrane. Like it's just, they're just kind of elegant. It's really following anatomy and it's just it kind of happens in a really nice sequence. So, uh, I, you know, I really do enjoy that. You know, I also like doing medial open reductions of the hip, even though my partners don't really like it that much. I kind of like getting in there and being around the vessels. And uh, it reminds me of Melbourne and Ian Tarot, who we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. And so it just kind of brings me back to a place that I really like. And um, I kind of also like doing derotation osteotomies over a nail only because I like to break the bone and that feeling of cracking the bone <laughs> is pretty good. Like, you know, Dan Hedequist and I often joke about it, but that's kind of, those are some fun procedures that I like, but I, you know, we're pretty lucky. I, you know, I think everything that I get to do is pretty awesome. Uh, so I feel pretty fortunate. I think those are maybe some unique entries into the, uh, into the canon of our the favorite cases. Wouldn't you guys say? Yeah, unique entries and unique reasons like snapping the bone. I've, I've got to ask, so wh- who's getting your split Tiban transfers? Because it's not something I use very often. I suspect a lot of people may not be using that very often. Yeah, so that's like a pretty good, that's like my workhouse for the equinovarus hemiplegic foot. And so I see a lot of those. So there's this procedure called the Rancho procedure from Los, Rancho, Los Amigos Ranchos Hospital on the West Coast that they described, you know, for kind of like a flexible Aquinovarus foot in like a 10 year old hemiplegic kid, you would do uh, calf lengthening like a, a strayer or a volpius 
um, an intramuscular lengthening of tib post with the same incision, uh, and then a split tib and transfer either into the lateral cuneiform or into brevis. And that cocktail I learned from Kerr, um, and it is awesome. Like I use that almost exclusively. I find that the tib ant is a much better transfer tendon than tib post just because of the way it works in phase. So, you know, tib ant is a swing phase muscle and tib post is more of a stance phase muscle. So for watching a child walk and if they're really supinating or bringing their foot in, tib ant really works really nicely. I don't use a whole one as much just because I worry about it just not being perfectly in the middle. And then, you know, you can take an equinal varus foot and make it equinal valgus or planal valgus, which is not the end of the world either. But um, I tend to try and balance them out as much as possible. So that's why I like it. Because if you do it right, it's money. And it's, it's like they don't need a brace. They're sweet. It grows with them. Everyone's super happy. Yeah, any nice. tendon transfer procedure takes me back to my hand surgery days. And I, I kind of feel like I'm a little bit of an out-of-body experience, you know? You're kind of pretending to be a hand surgeon for for a morning. It's just cool, right? Like if you're recreating pulleys and you're redesigning the way tendons are supposed to be, like, you know, when you have like a, a student in the OR with you when you're doing that, they're like, oh my God, we can do this? Like it blows <laughs> their mind. So the, I, you know, I like that. Those are always fun ones. All right. What is maybe your most feared case? Oh, for sure. It is the bad radial neck. Oh, yeah. Everybody hates. It doesn't matter what you do. They stink. Even when I bring Don into the room with me, I still hate it. So, yeah, that's the one that me and my um, me and my kind of main kind of neuromuscular partner, Colin Watkins, we always are just like, oh, not the radial neck. We hate that. Yeah. Are you talking radial neck fractures or are you talking like the chronic dislocations and no, things like that? No, just like a, like a radial neck that's like a, a fracture that's not like wide off, but almost like green sticked and plastered against the shaft. And it just, it's just going to go bad. You know, you're going to get it up and then it's going to have this cortical loss on one side because it's like somewhat comminuted and then it's not going to hold. Then maybe you're going to open it and you're like, do I put pins in it? Then it gets really stiff and then it dies and, you know, all those things that happen, uh, I just like, those are ones that I, you know, I'm not like a huge fan of. <laughs> I, I think every single one of us, as you say that, can probably imagine one of our own cases in our heads that, uh, that we, that we regret ever being on call when it showed up. So, um, yeah, I think that's a pretty good one. <laughs> I, I still just think of Julia's, uh, radial head in, in the Olecranon Fossa, actually. And just, oh, I just, remember. Uh, yeah. I remember. I still vicariously. have nightmares about that thing. <laughs> Was that, that was when you were in San Diego, right? Yeah. I remember because we were there for cortices and you were showing your trauma cases and all the cortices members saw that and were like, oh. And then someone was like critiquing you and, I, and we were just like, listen, there is 0.0 critique here. You did a great job. <laughs> yeah. There's was, nothing to be done for that. And then I graduated and so I'm assuming he did great, you know? Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's the nice thing about uh, being an attending and fellowship is you, you do move on from your first year of cases and mistakes. <laughs> All right. Um, so um, again, Ben, want to thank you for joining us today. We'll get into the meat of things here uh, with a couple of papers you've done recently. Um, just for those people who maybe um, don't know uh, Ben Shore all that well, um, I'll give a few accolades. Um, he is a associate professor at uh, Boston Children's Hospital. He is the director of their Peds Ortho Fellowship. So all you uh, PGY4s getting ready for fellowships, you will 
meet him soon, most likely. Um, you have a master's of public health, which I believe you got when you were uh, on staff already. And um, I think you have some of the papers we'll talk about certainly show your bent towards uh, public health. And then um, you're also the co-director of the Cerebral Palsy Center. And I, I wanted to ask a little bit more about that and what your um, cerebral palsy uh, resources are like at Boston, if you'd tell us a little bit more about that position. Sure. Yeah. So uh, first, um, you know, I did my master's of public health at the end of my second fellowship uh, in Boston. And the reason why I did it was um, I did a fair amount of research in Melbourne, but it was like a lot of grunt work. Like I spent a lot of time after hours on the weekends doing pretty tedious kind of collection of data. And it uh, just didn't seem to be a very efficient way of doing stuff. So my impetus to do the Masters of Public Health was I just kind of wanted to learn a little bit more. The Masters of Public Health at Children's is, or the Harvard School of Public Health is really nice because you can just do a summer and it's called a summer clinical effectiveness. And you probably can gain all the tools you need in that summer. Uh, so I started with that and then I you can parlay that into a master's. And so I did that over the next couple summers, which is hard to do. And I don't know if I would recommend it for everybody because um, it may not be necessary anymore. Because since so many papers need a statistician on, you know, this was kind of before that. And I thought it would be a good thing to do. But so that's the master's part. And uh, we call it a center, the Cerebral Palsy Center, because it's a, and I'm a, co-director of it just because there are kind of four pillars of the center. So there's ortho, neurology, neurosurgery, and complex care. So each kind of head of those departments is a co-director. I sometimes act as the overall director, but in reality, we're all co-directors, but I tend to kind of just kind of move things along just because I've been there for a bit of time. Um, but it's it's a great situation. And it was really developed by the hospital when the hospital realized, you know, what proportion of kids with cerebral palsy are cared for by the hospital. And when they realized that like, oh my gosh, this is making up a fair amount of our bottom line, they decided that this was an important investment. And so they invested in some services that really help from um, a clinical perspective. I think in all of our hospitals, one of the biggest challenges we have with uh, cerebral palsy is that it's kind of like a grab bag diagnosis of kids that just aren't right often. And so it's very hard to know what your working population is. And you can't really start to make things better without knowing who you're treating. And that's primarily because people come into different doors of the hospital, so to speak, like revolving doors. And each department is a door and they're not really all well connected. And so you can come into neurology and just get treated and then get kicked right back out. And so by creating a center, we kind of guarantee that all the kids that need one of those services are getting services from all of those services. So we just try and improve the care delivery, I think, primarily. And then we have like these coordinators that are able to schedule across those different clinics. One of the biggest challenges, like you want someone to go to neuro, you don't know how to schedule them in neuro. It's like a giant barrier, but our coordinators can book into each one of the subspecialties. So it's much easier and we don't waste our time trying to coordinate that. So it's made the physician's life a lot easier. And I think ultimately the care for the kids is better. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. I've definitely experienced some of those hurdles uh, myself uh, at my institution and it's you know, sometimes you have to wait three months to see that other specialist. And so it's it's tough to have that availability. I think also what we did is just sorry to add on is um, by having some coordinators, we could create like an intake form because what happens is there's, you know, there's never enough space in the clinics. 
And so you want the right person to come to those specialty clinic appointments. You don't want someone who's just totally inappropriate taking up that valuable spot. So by having an intake form that we complete with the parents, we kind of have a much better sense of what they need, who they should see, so that each visit is kind of just a little bit more efficient. Uh, yeah. It's more tailored. It's still not perfect. And people fall through the cracks all the time. But I think those things really have helped us improve our care delivery. Okay, well, let's get into some um, some facts and some papers that uh, our listeners at home maybe um, haven't read or want to hear a little bit more about. Um, the first one I flagged is from uh, the most recent Jay Posna. Um, and you had spoke about uh, your partner, Colin Watkins, who we all did our fellowship interviews with Colin and uh, know him and uh, remember him fondly. Um, but you guys, uh, you were the senior author. He was the lead author. And this is the reliability of intraoperative hip arthrography in cerebral palsy hip reconstruction. And um, this was essentially a reliability study. You guys were um, looking at interpreting the arthrogram images at the time of CP hip reconstruction. Um, essentially, could you classify uh, reliably medial dye pool or also this uh, labrum position? Like, is it neutral or upsloping or is it downsloping? The interesting thing is that when when you showed your cases of the pelvises uh, pre-op and then you showed arthrogram images, the difference between the plain films and the arthrogram images, um, essentially the attending surgeons would change their mind away from doing a pelvic osteotomy 35% of the time after they saw the arthrogram images, having previously thought that they would do a pelvic osteotomy. Um, and so this is pretty early stage, um, I think, from a research standpoint, but I presume and know that you've been applying this clinically. I know because when I started practice, uh, Joe Stone, who was a partner of mine, uh, had, I think, talked to you about it. And he was using it clinically, and I started using it clinically. So I can only wait to hear how you're applying it and um, what uh, what you think the next steps are. Yeah, so... Um... This is great. I'm glad you guys pulled this. This was a collaboration with some of my colleagues. Kemble was our, one of our fellows and Kerr Graham in Melbourne. So it was really nice to collaborate together. And I presented this this year at POSNA was that, you know, just using a plain film to assess acetabular coverage uh, in a neuromuscular hip is probably like very inaccurate. It, it, you know, it's kind of like trying to paint a masterpiece with a bucket of paint, right? Um, and in reality, a lot of people, because people feel that like, you know, they can measure version by clinical exam, a lot of people don't get any three-dimensional imaging preoperatively when they're going to do a hip reconstruction. And so essentially, they're really making their decision before surgery on a gestalt. You know, you're looking at an AP pelvis. We know that there's deficiency in the acetabulum either posteriorly, but also anteriorly. And that the plain film really doesn't show you enough of where the deficiencies are. And so, you know, if you want to be an efficient surgeon and plan your day, you want to know, like, am I doing one pelvis? Am I doing two pelvises? Am I got to do two feet? You know, so in all of this, I just found like it was just in my fellowship in Melbourne, we almost did no pelvic osteotomies. And then I came to Boston and we did like almost everyone got a pelvic osteotomy. I was like, this can't, this makes no sense. I couldn't figure it out. Um, and Bob Kay published about using an arthrogram about a decade ago in a small series, but didn't really give the criteria of how to make the decision. And so, you know, Bob, I think, is a great thinker. And the guys at Gillette also were doing a little bit of this. And so those are centers that I've always gone to for help. And, and I just kind of asked them, you know, how do you do this? And neither of them could really articulate, you know, what exactly they're using. And so we started to just do this in clinical practice. 
And it was primarily myself and, and Colin. And then other people would pop into our room and say, like, what are you doing? And they were like, you know, how are you interpreting this? And so we <clears throat> developed a classification system and then we just wanted to test it. Now we're at the stage now where we've been doing this for about seven years. And now we're going to look at our data and compare it from seven years before to seven years after. Because our, our rate of pelvic osteotomy has gone tremend down tremendously. And it may be that there will be revisions later on and we just haven't seen them. But there sure hasn't been any increase in our revision rate, despite doing many fewer pelvic osteotomies. And so I think it kind of speaks to, as orthopedic surgeons, you know, we're much more comfortable when we do more. When we do less, there's a much bigger decision about it. And then we like stress about it. And if we just throw the kitchen sink, we'll always just feel better. But many times the kitchen sink isn't needed and there's like morbidity associated with the kitchen sink. So, you know, in simple terms, the way this is used or the way we use it is you do your femoral osteotomy and the only indication to do an arthrogram before the femoral osteotomy, I think is like if the hip is really far, far out of the joint and you do your soft tissue releases and, and you can't get the hip down or you think you get it down and you're not sure and you want to do your arthrogram just to see how down you get it. Because, you know, if the hip is not coming down, doing a femoral osteotomy in a subluxated hip is kind of like a lousy day because then, you know, you're trying to open the hip joint up afterwards and you've already done your osteotomy so the hip is sitting in the spot where you're trying to see. So we will do our femoral osteotomy and then do an arthrogram. And really we're looking at what you talked about, Craig. We're looking at the medial dipole. We're looking at the shape of the acetabulum. So the acetabulum is either downsloping, flat, or upsloping. When it's downsloping, there's no instability. When it's flat, when it's upsloping, there's always instability. And when it's horizontal, it's somewhere in the middle. And so once we do the femoral osteotomy, we'll do the arthrogram, We'll move the hip through a range of motion and then do a modified bar low. If the hip is stable, the medial dipole isn't changing significantly, there's no break in Shenton's arc, we stop. We don't do a pelvic osteotomy. And I think that's a much more um, objective and reproducible way of assessing whether a pelvic osteotomy is needed. Yeah. From the other hosts, have you guys applied arthrogram? I mean, I would say that there's clearly things that you're not seeing on plain film with uh cartilaginous onlog. And I always feel like I understand a joint better with an arthrogram. And you mentioned this in the paper that uh, you were showing stills, but, you know, this is a dynamic test. And, you know, for me, seeing a range of positions and where it's stable and where it's not and thinking about where I need acetabular coverage and thinking about my version uh, is all part of the uh, all part of the algorithm, but I would say it sounds like your algorithms may be a little more thought out than mine. Uh, I don't know about that, but I think the one thing when you're doing a dynamic assessment where you can fall into a bit of a trap is if the if you're starting out with a hip that has like a migration percentage of 50 or 60%, when you do your varus, there's going to be slop to the capsule, right? So then once you take the hip into flexion and adduction, you'll see some motion of the hip, like it's going to be moving in the capsule. And the, uh, the inexperienced person who's interpreting this is going to take that motion and go, this needs a pelvis. But look a little more closely at Shenton's arc. If Shenton's arc isn't changing, even though there's some space in the medial dipole that's changing, that's really just a reflection of the capaciousness of the capsule, which does contract down 
over time because the hip just doesn't stretch out anymore. And so that's the one thing that I think is a nuance that we've developed over time where when we saw any motion initially, we'd be like, oh, we got to do something. But it's actually not looking at so much the motion, but looking at Shenton's and seeing if Shenton's is breaking. Shenton's isn't breaking, then the hip is relatively stable. And so we try and give that a chance. Uh, I think that's just a nuance. It's not really in the paper because it's very hard to articulate that. You mentioned inexperience, and I think that's one of the things from the paper that, as an education nerd, I find really interesting is that the fellows, you know, changed their plan much uh, lower rate than the attendings did based on the arthrogram. And so, um, you know, other than just reps and using this and seeing this, how would you recommend to folks younger in their practice or, or fellows on how do, how do you get to that point where you're actually using this reliably? Because I think there is a lot of nuance to this. Yeah, that's a great point, Julia. Um, <clears throat> CP surgery is not hard. So it's not the surgery that's tricky. It's the dose that's super tricky. And so I think that the fellows didn't change much because I don't think they still understood an arthrogram. Like, I think I've learned by doing the arthrogram so frequently, I think you actually learn much more about the arthrogram, just even in your early practice, right? Just appreciating what the on-log looks like, what's normal, what's like a good-looking on-log, what's not a good-looking on-log. And I think that those things are kind of higher-level learning. And I, I think that even though the, the fellows learn a lot in their year, I think this is some of the stuff that does take a little bit more experience just in terms of of looking at and and appreciating. I also think too, you know, when a fellow is participating in a study, they don't want to seem uncertain, you know, so they just kind of stick with their guns because it's like, no, this is the way we're doing it. And, you know, I, I give them credit for sticking to their guns and going there, but I think it's probably a bit multifactorial of both of those things. So I've got two questions. At one point we had uh, Puya Hosanzada on the podcast, maybe at a couple points. Um, but at one point we were talking about one of his papers, which sort of took the opposite approach to this and said, let's just look pre-op at the acetabular index. And if it's more than 25, it's dysplastic and we'll do the pelvis. And if it's less than 25, we won't. And it really doesn't matter what kind of pelvic osteotomy we do because the lateral coverage is what we really need. And the, the numbers were great and it seemed to work and, and do the job. How much overlap do you think there would be with the patients with that 25 plus acetabular index getting the pelvic osteotomy with what you're finding in this uh, with this technique? Right. So I think this gets to, and I've talked to Puy about this because uh, I feel pretty strongly against what he says. The first thing is like, yeah, if you throw, you know, if you throw the kitchen sink at everything, they're going to do well. Right. But like things do well when you don't need to have the surgery done. Right. Those are like the best cases. Uh, best outcomes are when the surgery is not necessary or indicated. Um, an acetabular index is the worst assessment of this hip. We know and what we looked at this year that we, we presented at POSNA is that, you know, historically we're taught that neuromuscular hips are deficient posterolaterally. So we looked at 500 hips across functional levels. And what we found, which was super interesting, was that the classic, unique, or exclusive posterolateral insufficiency is only in GMFCS level one and two kids. So the ambulant kids, right, we're taught that it's deficient posterolaterally because they sit a lot and they're in their wheelchair. The ambulant kids have exclusively posterolateral insufficiency. And the reason for that is probably a combination of their tone and their version. The threes, fours, and fives have global deficiency all over. 
And so your acetabular index typically is measuring just your anterior acetabulum. And so I think it's not really a very accurate assessment of what you're seeing um, with respect to the hip. And so, yeah, you can draw a line in the sand and just everyone gets a pelvic osteotomy. But, you know, I went to Melbourne, which I think is one of the leaders uh, in neuromuscular care, and I probably did a handful of pelvic osteotomies over my year. And, and they're doing, you know, two or three cases every week. So there's got to be something that's not wrong with that. Now, it could be related to the intervention and the dose and how much varus you give and all of these other factors. But I would strongly think that, uh, that you need a little bit more info than just making an acetabular index. I think that's just kind of a, you know, just it's basically you'll end up doing osteotomies on everybody. And, and we've talked about femoral osteotomy and pelvic osteotomy. Does open reduction capsulography fit into your, your approach at some point? You know, I think the only indication to do an open reduction is if you can't get the hip down, right? Because then you're doing a femoral osteotomy and the hip's kind of sitting in a subluxated position. And we probably all had to revise some of those from elsewhere. And those are just really difficult and challenging cases to do. Just like DDH, I think if you don't get it right in the first time, it's almost impossible to get it really perfect the second time. Um, so my role for an open reduction is if I do a soft tissue lengthening and I can't get the hip down, uh, or uh, if I, if the hip just stays out, it doesn't want to come down. Like I don't like do my femoral cut and see if the hip will come down. If I can't get it down before I do my femoral osteotomy, then it probably needs some degree of an open reduction because part of the open reduction is facilitating getting the hip in. But the other part that no one talks about is that the inframedial capsular contracture really limits your degree of abduction. And so you're doing a lot of abduction stealing when you do your varus. And if your inframedial capsule is tight, then the leg ends up kind of sitting across the body, which also sucks for care and, and mobility and standing because then their ankles cross over and the parents are pretty disappointed about that. So my open reduction is primarily to facilitate either capsular release or just facilitate the hip getting deeper. The capsulorphy part afterwards, I don't think matters nearly as much, provided that you keep them in a pillow or something like that. I don't use a spike or anything like that. Yeah, and that's I. I was thinking I don't do arthrograms and and haven't. And I would say in my practice the last six years, I've been doing more open reductions for that reason that you say. I just feel, even if it's not really tight, I just feel their motion and getting the hip down where I'm real comfortable. I got it all the way down by adding a, an open reduction. I've been much more happy clinically with. But my question is: so if you do an open reduction, then you do that. How do you do your arthrogram or when do you do, or you just abort the arthrogram at that point, obviously? So I think usually if you're doing an open reduction, the likelihood of needing to do an arthrogram to help guide you is a little less because you're often the pelvis is pretty abnormal. But what you can do is I will often do my open reduction and throw my capsular stitches for my capsular closure, but not tie them down. I, I like to throw them ahead of time because once you do whatever pelvic osteotomy you do, you're kind of pushing the pelvis down and it makes it harder to see those sutures and things are bleeding and stuff. So it's better to throw your stitches first. And if you throw your stitches and, and squeeze it tight and you just put a whiff of a dye in the joint, you'll actually see what you want to see if that's what you want to see. Uh, and in many situations, if you just hold your capsular closure even before the pelvis, the hip is usually pretty stable once you brought it down because it's often a fair amount of shortening that what is what you need to kind of get it into its home. Um, but I think every case is a little bit different. Yeah, that's great. 
Well, all, all everyone popped off a of mute really quick with that discussion. So um, I think we could talk about CP hips all night. Um, and there's probably uh, enough uncertainty there to have a pretty good conversation about it. But I do want to move on. Um, this is maybe a little bit away from the surgical surgical algorithms and more into maybe kind of your public health bent. And this is the barriers to discharge after hip reconstruction surgery in non-ambulatory children with neurological complex chronic conditions. So this was in uh, JPO um, last fall. And it was a retrospective study where you all looked at reasons that led to delayed discharge amongst uh, this population, um, or specifically hospitalization passed when they were medically cleared. So they were medically cleared to leave and they still stuck around for a few days. And why did that happen? Um, so obviously this has, um, a big, big implications for cost of care. Um, and you all had found that 30% of your delays past medical clearance were due to poor education, 29% uh, waiting for, uh, durable medical equipment. Um, and then sometimes there were transport and placement issues. They were less common, but they led to about three and a half times longer delays. The only patient-specific factors that were associated with delay were a GMFCS level five and um, increasing medical comorbidities. So um, it's good to know who these people are. Uh, my question for you was, I, I presume that you all have then kind of taken some steps to deal with these reasons. And I'm curious what you've done and if you know what's been effective that you can share with us or things that you suspect will be effective um, and what things we might be able to take home to our own institutions. Yeah. So the great question, I think we really looked at this because there are lots of other centers that do really a great job of getting kids in and out of the hospital in particular, Nick Fletcher and his group in Atlanta, both for their spine and for their neuromuscular hips, their length of stay is much shorter than a lot of other places. And I couldn't tell if it was like maybe people in the new, new, like in New England and the Northeast just are like too hands on and just need to be babied too much and they just can't kind of cope. Uh, because I think like in the South, they're just like, okay, you're better get out. And they don't like say like, no, I'm not going to get out. They just go, they get out. Um, but you know, and so I was like, well, maybe it's just they have different populations. I just couldn't believe that the length of stays were so different. So in honesty, that was like the impetus for looking at this. You know, what was really interesting is that like three quarters of our population had some sort of really, really achievable or modifiable barrier, right? Education, equipment, durable medical, transportation. Those are things that you can plan for. These kids are on the books for six months ahead of time. But what was happening was, is that we had one or two case managers for the entire surgical hospital component. And so they were so overwhelmed that they could never really preemptively reach out to families and figure out what equipment they needed ahead of time. And so just the way the hospitals and insurance works, it takes like three to five days to get stuff. So they would get, they would start working essentially post-op day zero, but it's too late. And so what we did is we said, okay, well, let's just hire our own case manager for ortho. So we just hired our own case manager for ortho who would reach out to these people, uh, the patients like three to six, three to six months before surgery, essentially, and start the discussion of what do you really need and, and, and how is this going to work for your house? The first thing that does is like prevents those patients post-op day one that are like, no way I can go home because we've all seen those ones, right? That like, for whatever reason, you've told them eight times and you think that they heard you, but then when they get to the 
recovery room or to the floor, they're like, well, I can't get in my house like this. I don't have a helper. I need like a one-to-one, you know. So I think it helps identify those disasters ahead of time. But the main simple thing was like ordering like equipment, wheelchair, commode, bed. And so just in our neuromuscular population over a two-year period, and we just haven't published this data yet, over a two-year period, we changed our length of stay by one to one and a half days within their neuromuscular cohort. The case manager was working both for all of ortho, and so we didn't see that big change in the other disciplines, but I just don't think their delays were so, you know, so increased. So I think that's like a real easy thing to do. I think we can also do a lot better with like caregiver expectations and um, education, especially now because people really learn virtually, right? It's just about creating the right curriculum. Similar to the way, you know, total joints do bone school for the total joint patients. I think we could do that for all areas of pediatric orthopedics. Yeah. I, I think those pre-op neuromuscular visits are some of the more complex for the families. There's so much they need to know. And so it's it's hard to even prioritize what you should prepare them for as a surgeon. Um, so a lot of room for improvement there. But the the case manager... Uh, is is a very interesting addition that it that it makes that big of a difference, but uh, it's really not surprising when you point out the reasons for for delay. Do you guys have case managers? How does it work? Our, I would say that ours react similarly to yours, and that they're going to be in the hospital post op day zero, starting to take action. But our inpatient nurse practitioner is extremely skilled, and so she picks up on these people ahead of time and kind of starts flagging the case managers or will do their job herself. So um, she's fantastic and can fill that role. We've got um, a slightly different but similar setup with nurse navigators in the department. So it's the same people who book the surgery, communicate with the family beforehand, and then also try to coordinate everything, uh, all the patient needs afterwards. So that that makes it go pretty smoothly in our department. It's funny, the acronym CCC is all over this paper. When I started flipping through, I was just like, well, that must mean... Uh, clinical care coordinator. And that's like, oh no, that means complex chronic conditions, but that sort of ended up being the punchline. Yeah. (laughs) That's interesting. We've definitely flirted with the the navigator um, just to kind of see how things work, which I think is really helpful. I think the issue is really trying to hire the right person who's working at the top of their skill set. So you're not overpaying, right? You know, because this isn't something that a a nurse or even a nurse practitioner generally needs to do. It's like Mm -hmm. the main person is actually the helper of the case manager, which is just the person on the phone who's just grinding it out. And that is like a fairly low level job just because it, it, it just, you just, it's just, it's not a very pleasant job, but it's just calling and calling and calling and calling, but you just have to know who to call basically. All right, and with that, we are going to take a little break from the program to hear a word from our sponsor. This month is generously sponsored by Depew Synthes Spine. You might notice some change in the background because I am right now sitting down live at the 2023 annual meeting in Nashville, and I am joined by Russell Powers, who is the president of Depew Synthes Spine. And first of all, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Carter. Thanks for having me. Uh, a big thank you for the sponsorship, for your support of POSN and the POSN Mission. As our regular listeners know, this sponsorship doesn't affect the content of this show but it certainly supports POSNA and all that they do. And with that, let's just get into it. I want to keep it simple. Can you just tell me what you are most excited about right now in the world of Depuy Synthes Spine? 
Yeah, at the Pew Cynthia Spine, we are dedicated and focused on complex spine and deformity surgeries, uh, specifically uh, scoliosis. And uh, there's a few things in this space that I'm really excited about. First is our new Altaline Ultra Alignment System, which we're actually launching at this meeting. Altaline is a new rod material that has a bending yield strength superior to 6.0 cobalt chrome rod, all in a 5.5 millimeter profile. And it's a really new way of thinking about uh, rod performance, and I think will be the rod of choice for pediatric deformity surgeons in the future. The second is our next generation thoracal lumbar system that builds on over 20 years of experience with Expedium, Viper, and Matrix, and it brings together new features, enhanced instrumentation, and a streamlined workflow. And part of that workflow is that it's designed specifically to be used with a robot, which is the last thing that I'm really excited about. Uh, we're bringing to the market a new spine robot and navigation system that will help us better deliver uh, more predictable, reproducible, and optimal surgical outcomes. So a lot of exciting things that you sent these spine, and we look forward to bringing them to the market in the very near future. Well, that's awesome. Thank you for your time. I have enjoyed personally hearing about this stuff. A big thank you to Depew Cynthia Spine for supporting POSNA. And with that, let's get back to the regular show. Uh, thank you, Carter. Let's get into maybe some of your work in a different realm. This is a infection paper. You were the lead author, but it comes from the Cortices group, or you were the senior author. Um, Salil Upasani uh, was the lead author. And this is the practice variation in surgical management of children with acute hematogenous osteomyelitis. And this is JPO, um, again, from uh, a little bit last year. So multi-center retrospective study looking at uh, AHO or acute hematogenous uh, osteomyelitis, looking at the treatment and namely really looking at the frequency of surgery and the variables associated with surgery amongst this cohort. Um, and of all the patients with AHO, 62% were treated surgically. And the predictors, the strongest predictor was the institution, uh, which I don't think uh, any of my four co-fellows will find surprising, um, given what, what we were kind of taught and what we saw in fellowship. Um, but then also a patient's ability to ambulate, whether there's multifocal disease, how elevated their CRP is and platelet counts, and then also um, location of uh, of disease. So a lot of clinical factors, but the the institution uh, factor is uh, really interesting. And obviously, um, you know, the only only rationale for that is not clinical based; it's uh, dogma based. And so, um, I wanted to know, I guess, what was it like with this project, especially coming from a multi center group, and uh, what were the different opinions on 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 looking at this data. Yeah, well, I, it's great that you're asking me about this, but I take um, very little credit for for this study. So I think it's important to recognize this. Uh, creating an infection database was really John Shanneker's idea. Uh, it was his vision, um, and he put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into thinking about how we uh, create this database. And in reality, we still have several papers that are going to come out related to this. And this was kind of like our, our really our first project that we started as a quarter seats group. So it just shows you how long sometimes it takes to get something off the ground. But it was a great exercise for us. Salil and Jess Burns did a lot of the heavy lifting for this particular study. Um, and, um, you know, I think the reason why I think for if Salio was here is he would say, look, you know, in Boston, he did his fellowship with us and we're fairly selective. You know, you have an infection, you get imaging, you check your lab work, you start antibiotics, 
if the imaging doesn't show <coughs> a huge abscess, we follow you clinically and see how you do. And the majority of those kids get better without any surgery. Um, but then in San Diego, it's the exact opposite, where you're just going to the OR and you're getting a debridement. And he was like, well, it just doesn't make any sense. He wanted to practice the Boston way in San Diego, but everyone at the beginning was like kind of riding him pretty hard. Um, and so he, you know, appropriately wanted to try and look at that. And so he used this a CART analysis, which is a type of multivariable regression. And it's just really interesting. And it just basically now shows us where we are positioned as cortices. You know, partly when you do these large retrospective studies, the whole point of doing them is to set the stage for a prospective study. So we have like a perfect prospective study set up because there's this equipoise across our sites where some people do it some way, some people do it the other way. And it's not really based on clinical factors. It's really based on kind of where you did your training and who told you what to do. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a perfect setup for either a prospective study where you just do based on your own practice, because we'll get variation because of that, uh, or whether we try and randomize or, um, you know, or try and have some a really established treatment arm. So, um, <clears throat> It's pretty exciting. You know, the reality is, is that there wasn't much fighting about this because, like, um, we didn't really realize there was this dichotomy when we looked through the data because when you look at the data as a large aggregate, it's like there's like over eight, there's over eight or 9,000 entries. So it's just a lot of data to, to look at. And what we did is we each had separate questions. And so once this question came out, it became very interesting to see how the differences were. Um, and I think that part is really like eye-opening. Like I found this to be a very, um, a very eye-opening paper for me, just because I had no clue that other places were doing this. And the whole reason why other places do this, they said, is because the virulence is so different. But the first study that we did showed that, like you know, the virulence is it is a little different in the southeast compared to otherwhere, compared to other places, but not tremendously in terms of what the proportion of MRSA is versus MSSA. So it doesn't really justify such a discordance in practice that we see. So it's just very interesting, and it sets the stage for other prospective study. Yeah, I, I am very interested in, in seeing those future studies come out. Um, there were differences amongst the places where I train, and so they were um, very kind of like, I think what you're describing with Salil, they're very fresh in my mind as to, uh, why are we doing it this, this way one in one place and not, not in the rest of the world. Julia. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm going to add my two cents in, cause this is a, a topic pretty close to my heart. And, um, you know, we're at Colorado, we're one of the centers that operates on pretty much everybody. And it's not really for debridement necessarily. It's for source identification. So unless they have a positive blood culture, we're taking them to the OR to get a bug. And that's been born out of our very active um, infectious disease group and their um, data on decreasing length of stay, decreasing failure of antibiotic therapy. Um, and, and so that's kind of, you know, when I stepped into my role and take care of a lot of the infections, that was the protocol that was built at our institution. And um, one of the things that I think this study really taught me about research, about multi-center studies, about being, I think, uh, responsible with research and with data is that terminology really matters. And I would 
you know, I was smiling when we talked about when, when you were mentioning, you know, it was there a lot of fighting. And I agree with Ben, it wasn't fighting necessarily as much as, you know, what does the term need for surgery mean? Right? Because you can say X number of patients needed surgery. It's not really that they needed surgery or didn't surgery, they they got surgery, right? At some, you know, places they you get surgery, not necessarily because you need surgery for debriefment. And so I think being very conscious about your language um, with this kind of study is really important. Um, and, you know, being, again, conscientious about what your indications for surgery are, because you have this database with all this data, and you have to be careful because the kids that got surgery in one institution are, are maybe a completely different subset of patients. And so that, that was a huge learning experience for me. Uh, being early in my research career and um, just big thank you to Salil and, and Ben and, and uh, John for taking the lead on this because I think this is a study that it almost kind of shows the flaws in some of our um, our research and how we really just need to be careful going forward with this kind of stuff. But there's going to be a lot of good stuff that comes out of this for sure. Yeah, I think, Julia, those are all really good um Excellent comments. And, you know, we revised the REDCap database several times over just because of the terminology. And <clears throat> part of it is you just don't always know the, the, uh, the, what are the unintended consequences of going left when you should have gone right until you go left. And then you realize, oh, we should have gone right. And, um, you know, I, th I think there's lots of still flaws within the database. Um, and it's hard because everyone refers to things very different. And uh, it's just it's just really interesting to hear the differences across institutions, right? Like I hear what you're saying about source identification and and we like it's almost like it's not that it doesn't it's not that we don't hear that, but like we only hear that when like in the one kid in a month that doesn't seem to get better, they're like saying that. But like we don't it's just not something we hear, yet we do it the exact flip and inverse. And so it's just, you know, this is the part about medicine, which is so unique in terms of like, you're taught a way and then you like, you like own that way. And then when you hear someone say a different way, you're like, Oh, that's gotta be wrong. Right. Cause it's like so different than the way you're taught. And we're just so trained to kind of go a certain way, but you know, I'll be damned. I have no clue what's the right way here. Well, that's the fun part to me, right, about being involved in this kind of stuff and, and, and reading these papers because, uh, you know, and even we're talking about CP hips, right, is, is we heard two very different, distinct, completely opposite ways of thinking about things. So that's one of the things I really like about our field. And um, last one I picked here, Ben, is um, more of a, a fun one, but I like it because um, I think a lot of my residents always ask, oh, should we flip it over? Uh, the C arm uh, when we're pinning a supracondylar. Um, and I always tell them no, cause you're going to irradiate yourself more. And so I had, I think read this before, but you guys put some numbers to it. So this is a, a JPO article just coming out, um, just e-released uh, coming out in August, uh, but it's minimizing surgeon radiation exposure during operative treatment of pediatric supracondylar humerus fractures. You're the senior author. Um, the lead author is a uh, Blake Montgomery, um, one of your uh, fellows uh, wa going to Wash U, I uh, met him recently. 
Um, and so uh, you guys found that the effective dose equivalent um, was higher um, because essentially the radiation is hitting the more vulnerable parts of your upper body um, when you have the tube flipped on top and then the rays are then hitting the uh, in this in your study of phantom, but in the case, you know, the surgical target <laughs> and then um, kind of uh, reflecting elsewhere. And so you'd almost rather have the tube below the table and um, uh, reflecting on less vulnerable tissue uh, is is the conclusion. Um, I wonder just if you had any uh, if you could share the rationale for why why you did this study. You know, we all learn so much from our fellows, right? These are all fellows on this paper. So Emily, Craig, and Kemble were co-fellows together. And then Blake was a fellow the following year who just kind of brought it across the line because it had wallowed for a couple of years, as sometimes fellows projects do. Um, Patricia's our statistician, and Don is the physicist that works in the radiology department. But it all really was Emily's idea. So Emily came from San Diego, and she was like, I, I think they're much better in San Diego, even in the residency of like protecting the, the trainees. You know, they all had like lead glasses and she was like shocked that we would flip the C-arm. So we would put the, the you know, the, the bigger part of the receptor underneath and use it as a table. And that's the way we all do our elbows. That's the way like Waters and Bay taught us. And that's the way we do it. And she was like losing, losing her mind. She was like, I cannot believe you guys are doing this. Um, this is so much radiation. I can't believe you're, you're subjecting yourself to this. And then the other thing that <clears throat> we do is that because we don't have like, we didn't at this time when she was there, we didn't have a, a floating hand table. We had like a big hand table with like a beam that came down. That was like a Royal pain in the butt to use. And so that's why we flipped the C-arm and just used the C-arm. But she was like, oh, we have this like great plexiglass and you should just use that. And so that was the start of all of this. And fellows are encouraged to do a QI project. So these three fellows did this as their QI project um, for the year. Um, and it was really cool. And I think the main issue was just to kind of figure out who's right, because they were really interested in it and they wanted to be safe moving forward. And then, you know, A, we didn't have plexiglass, we didn't have graphite. And after this paper, we got a floating hand table. That's awesome. And um, so I think the takeaway messages are is that flipping the C-arm upside down so that you have the receptor opposite and the, the opposite of the standard way. While it's easier technically, over the lifespan of a surgeon, it probably increases your radiation a moderate amount. And so you probably shouldn't do that. Second, um, while there is really no meaningful difference between plexi glass and graphite, I would strongly encourage you to use graphite and not use plexiglass because plexiglass is a lot thicker and it needs much more KVs to go through it. And so it wasn't significant here because it's all relatively small. But just if you think about stochastic events, if you use plexiglass and swear by it, try and get a piece of graphite. Most of your radiology departments actually have them because when they take their plane films, they have these graphite things that they put limbs on and stuff like that. And just try it out because it's it's just as good as plexiglass and you'll get better images because you don't have to increase your KVs. So those were the two things. It was just one of those like really just practical kind of things. It probably it's changed our practice because we now have a floating hand table. Is the floating hand table made of graphite? Yeah. 
It's, okay. a, little, it's a little graphite extension that has uh, attachments to it. And uh, any financial relationships of you with a graphite hand table? Or are we uh, we're clear oh, no. to promote that? I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, no. I guess I probably should have thought of, um, beforehand. Maybe I could I'm have seeing a run it. on graphite floating hand tables exactly. happening now no, no, after no. this talk. No, but I think it just was interesting. You know, again, it's just another, um, you know, sometimes research is like not so much fun and you slog through it. But like if you have something that you're, you're passionate about or you feel strongly about it, it's just easier to kind of crank through it. So I remember the uh, there was a good radiology talk at my AO basic course. <clears throat> and somehow this uh, talk with three conclusions stuck with me and it's really changed what I do. So I, I just want to share that with everyone because one of the pieces of advice was always shoot the C-arm in the standard way from down to up so that the scatter goes down to your feet. Two, never take a fluoro shot with your hand in the field. You just don't need to. And three, don't go live. Just get a series of pictures and it'll decrease the radiation significantly. So that's all I know about fluoroscopy and radiation, but uh, it's made it, it's very easy to remember those three things. I think that's great. I gotta, I gotta be better with number three. Yeah. I'm not good. I'm not good. I'm number one and two. I'm okay with number three. I have not, I can't say I'm as good as you are with that one. Well, sometimes those finger pinnings, I'm like, I, I'll just take this one with my hand in there, but I try to remember. <laughs> All right. And, uh, Ben, I had, we always do this stirring the pot, um, section, which is where we ask questions kind of, controversial questions that we want you to give us the right answer, the non PC answer, but what you do. Um, I was going to actually take a bunch of questions about CP topics. Um, you've been a part of this group that does a lot of, um, a lot of, you know, Delphi consensus work on when should we do distal femur extension osteotomies? What should we do for, um, patellar shortenings and things like that? Um, I'm a little worried about time. And also I do want to just, mentioned that John Davids was just on with Nick Fletcher for the sister podcast and they did a lot of this. So um, even if we don't get into a lot of it, I do recommend everyone go and listen to that and hear uh, Dr. Davids uh, opinions on, on a lot of these topics. He's a um, lot smarter than me. So I would definitely <laughs> listen to Dr. Davids. He knows what he's talking about. Yeah. It's, it's a fantastic, uh, fantastic episode, uh, with, uh, with Nick and, uh, John David. So, um, do encourage everyone to listen to that. Maybe let's do the lightning round and, um, we'll see how we're doing on time. Carter, you want to start us off with one of yours? Sure. This is a uh, brand new EPUB from JPO called pediatric fractures. Does vitamin D play a role? And, uh, Selena Poon is the senior author and it's a pretty impressive RCT where they basically took kids in the ER with fractures and checked their vitamin D, calcium, uh, PTH. And then their control group was other kids that were just getting an IV that did not have a fracture, getting an IV for some totally different reason. So Ben, I'll ask you to start with, does vitamin D, either checking or treatment, play a, a role in your practice? 100% with my elective practice with neuromuscular kids. Every kid in New England is vitamin D deficient. Um, and uh, in particular, the neuromuscular kids, if they're not healing their bones, it's because often they're vitamin D deficient. So I think there's definitely a role. I'm not smart enough to figure out exactly where the sweet spot is, uh, but there's no doubt a role in my mind. So it is amazing how many kids are vitamin D deficient. In this study, in the overall population, 79% were either deficient or insufficient. 
Yeah, so. those numbers are similar to what we see in New England. And I would say it's related to the diets that kids have these days. Uh, it's just not as balanced as it used to be. Um, but in particular, in medically complex kids who have uh, anti-seizure medications, their vitamin D is often always deficient. And so interestingly, despite all of those low numbers of vitamin D, the fracture group and the non-fracture group were not significantly different in terms of the vitamin D. So the conclusion was that there's a huge amount of deficient and insufficient kids. But as far as this RCT could tell, it doesn't seem to be playing a role in the fractures, which is interesting. And, you know, it just makes you scratch your head and think, how much should we worry about this? I think whenever you have a very good prospective study that comes up with a negative conclusion, you just want to make sure, is it powered appropriately and is it asking the right question? And I'm not familiar enough with this paper to say that, but I think that's that's our one thing. You know, they may have powered for a difference that they thought was significant of X, but really a more significant difference is Y. And so the study's either underpowered to capture those differences that you're talking about. Uh, it is possible there there was a small trend, but um, it looks like they did do a power analysis and they enrolled 245 patients, which uh, they thought was going to be sufficiently powered to to ask this question. So an interesting read. Good. Thank you, Carter. Josh, I see you off mute. You want to throw away? Yeah, I'll jump in for the next one. So the next one is out of Scottish Rite. Recent study, um, Dr. Sakata is a senior author, essentially like much of the trend, and they point out in the study, much of the trend has been going to bracing earlier and earlier, smaller and smaller curves. So they looked at all of their AIS patients and some um, juvenile idiopathic scoliosis patients over several years, retrospectively review. Essentially, they just looked back at all of the people who they had indicated for bracing with curves less than 25 degrees and said, do we need to be bracing these people? What is the outcome? Can we cure curves? Can we slow progression? Um, and found very, very positive results. Um, so they looked at patients who were treated with full-time bracing, essentially, which was 18 hours a day um, was the goal, and patients who are nighttime only bracing. Surprisingly, they found that the 18-hour-a-day the goal, really, the average was only 11 hours a day. Um, with their temperature monitors and the nighttime bracing was like eight hours. So it, you know, they, I would question it, how much of a difference between the groups they, they were able to find despite the recommendations for time, but the results were similar between the two, which again, makes sense that um, really to see curve progression was only in single digits in both of the groups. And so, and then to, to get to a surgical threshold was, was even much lower than that. And so, the, the outcome of their study was that, that yes, probably bracing younger, bracing with curves, their average curve was 21 degrees when they started to brace, um, and bracing them younger uh, is, is helpful, which, again, I think most people have trended towards that as we've been finding more and more success, you know, starting with the brace trial and, and several since then have shown more and more success with bracing. So, um, I think this is one more addition to the literature that would suggest um, that probably the trend of bracing earlier and, you know, this debate of nighttime bracing versus 18 hours a day, we won't get into that now, but um, certainly there is a role for minimizing progression, even seeing some improvement and ideally decreasing the rates of surgical intervention by bracing earlier. Yeah, that's um, you know, that I kind of hear John Emmons in the background. Um, I am 
<clears throat> not someone who operates on spine, but have a robust spine practice, believe it or not. One of my days in the satellites, I think the pediatricians around there think I'm a spine surgeon. So all I see is scoliosis. Um, and my practice pattern is very much like that. So once the curve creeps over 20, they get a brace. Um, and um, I've been fairly successful, not really knowing a whole lot about what I'm doing, but fairly successful in not sending many of those patients that I've owned over to the guys that do the surgery. Uh, much to their chagrin. Um, and so, uh, <clears throat> you know, I think it's a really interesting study. I think there is a role to bracing. Uh, I think we were much less nihilistic about it now. And I think we have targets that we try and hit. And it's good to see that those are still successful. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I think it's something as big as spine surgery. Um, this goes back to the throwing the kitchen sink, right? Where I'm sure we're over treating a lot of kids because there's going to be lots and lots of kids with curves in the high teens or low twenties that are not going to progress no matter what you do. Um, but, but, uh, I think this is a, another, uh, good study. It's a, it's a big patient population that they were able to look at, um, all retrospective, but again, would certainly advocate for more studies, prospective, randomized, maybe better brace compliance um, data somehow, uh, but advocating for probably earlier bracing. Julia, do you um, you want to go over yours? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is out of uh, JDJS um, and comes out of the Scottish Rite uh, for Children in Frisco, Texas. Uh, James McGinley is the lead author and Henry Ellis is the senior author. So question is... Uh, rate of correction with distal femoral transficeal screws versus guided growth with plates, uh, specifically talking about hemiapophysiotesis for coronal plane knee deformities. So question for everybody, do you think these screws create a faster correction or do you think uh, the classic plate and screw tension band construct creates a faster correction? Julia, you were saying this was for coronal plane correction, not the sagittal plane? Correct. Coronal plane deformity. Okay. So genuverum, genuvaldum. Interesting. So I've only compared these two using it for sagittal plane deformity. Um, so I don't, I've never really used the screws for genuverum or genuvaldum. Um, I would say that I bet you the plates are a little bit more effective, but I would not know for sure. <clears throat> what was it in the sagittal plane, Ben? What was better or simple? Um, so I think the sagittal plane, it's uh, it's a little bit multifactorial. I think both probably work relatively well. In our experience, um, you know, when you put the plates on, you have to do four arthrotomies in, for, for sagittal correction, which is pretty uncomfortable for kids, whereas you put in the percutaneous screws above the, you know, like above the patella. So it's like a much better tolerated intervention, very low risk of having skin problems, stiffness, uh, issues with kids that like to crawl and stuff like that. So, um, you know, the standard for most of the neuromuscular guys is to use screws. Um, and we're just going to submit a paper that just talks about where's the ideal screw position. And it's really amazing to see how the physis grows around screws. And so I'd be curious to see what they talk about with, because, you know, like the physis grows like a tree, right? It grows circumferentially. So your screw is in one position in one year. The next year, if you take a same x-ray, it's in a different position because the physis has grown around it. Um, and so those were some of the things we learned that were really fascinating, but that's on the scope of Julia's question. 
Yeah, this is isolated idiopathic, just to clarify also, uh, coronal flame deformities. So Josh or Carter, do you guys have a guess? I mean, it seems to me like the screw should start working faster because it's like engaged in the right position. But the plate, I would think once the sort of the screws in the plate are engaged with the plate, it's got a bigger moment arm. So I think the correct, once it's engaged, I would expect that to have a faster rate of correction. So that's probably pr theoretical, but in theory, I think a, a pet screw would start faster and the plate would end up going faster. Yeah, I I teach the residents at least that plates take time to kind of kick in, right? They have to get to where that, that interference happens and a screw theoretically immediately does that. Um, I think the surface area, though, the, the wider out on the edge that you can be, the more you're going to affect right to where your center of rotation is. So I think the plate would be potentially stronger because it's just right on the edge, whereas a screw, you're not going to get right on that very edge, but probably kicking in a little quicker would be the screw. Yeah, so I, I was biased the same way as you guys, but it turns out um, that their results are that the mechanical axis um, deviation and the LDFA, as far as degrees, um, both changed. Uh, the, the rate of correction was significantly faster with um, the screws. So, uh, and I'll give you guys some numbers for the read for the listeners out there. So. The mechanical axis deviation rate of correction was about 0.42 millimeters per week in the plate cohort and 0.66 millimeters per week in the screw cohort. And then the rate of correction as far as degrees for the lateral distal femoral angle was about half a degree a month in the plate cohort and almost three quarters of a degree per month in the screw cohort. Um, so, you know, this is interesting and certainly not what I anticipated. Um, and these, this was a matched cohort. So this, I, I think the, um, the methods are pretty solid in this. So just something to think about. I think the trans spicial screws, you know, you can put them retrograde or anterograde, but uh, definitely something to consider using for your any epiphysiotheses. My biggest concern with that is always that I've had some screws where they're just such a beast to take them out because they're grown in there, they're titanium, they're kind of soft. And I don't know, do you, I, so, so in a situation like that, I'm, I'm a little hesitant if I'm like, I got to get the timing just right. And then either take off the plate or take out the screw. I know that plate can reliably be removed, but the screw, and it makes me nervous, especially if it's a big one. I usually use like a six, five. Have you guys had problems with that? Yeah, so we use four five for the knees uh, for our flexion stuff, and, but I almost always leave the screws between two and four millimeters brow, and so that sometimes creates a little bit of an issue right uh, right at the beginning with flexion. Mm -hmm. uh, but then kids usually work through it, and it's a non-issue, and that helps get them out uh, because the screws bend in the sagittal plane, and so they and and if you have them flush, forget it; it's over. It's like impossible. You Do any, any of you? Have any of you guys used stainless steel screws? I've been sort of interested in if that would come out more easily and reliably. So stainless steel, in my opinion, come out easier. And I also do the same thing as Ben. So I leave them out a little bit. I don't worry about trying to get them all the way down. That also helps you, you know, because a lot of the, there, there are certain companies that have the cannulated screws down to two millimeters for a longer stretch, but a lot of them are five. And so you don't have to worry quite as much about them flush if you're not worried about it. 
Yeah, Carter, big screws, stainless steel. I have not had issues taking them out, but the four fives for the sagittal plane, because of that bend, bend, like I haven't had trouble finding the screw head because I left them proud, but they're in there a long time and then they start to hyperextend and you have to take them out. Like I've, I've had them break and, uh, and that's, that is not a fun day. No, um, I hear you. All right. Uh, we got one more. Take us one, home, Carter. One more paper. This one is about pediatric femoral shaft fractures, and the title asks the question, cast or nail? So, you know, if we're going to be honest, Ben, if you're talking to a patient, they're between, you know, three and seven years old or so. When you're talking to them about options, do you feel like there's much sort of decision making between a spike, a cast, uh, and a uh, and flex nails? How's that conversation go? Do you feel like it goes where you point it, or unless the kid's like giant, they're getting a cast in my hands all day, every day. I feel like I'm not scared of putting on a spica. I know how to do it. Uh, I think that's one of the issues. Casting is a lost art within pediatric orthopedics, unfortunately. I was always taught that a cast is an extension of your soul. Uh, <laughs> so, like, you know, we cast it a lot in Canada. Um, and, you know, with the one-legged spica, I don't think it's that much morbidity. You know, all the challenges with being not able to transfer the child and having to stay home and stuff like that. I don't think those risks are so great. Uh, so somewhere between six and seven, I think, is where I would transition away from that. And it's mostly just based on size and maybe fracture mechanism if it's like a giant comminuted butterfly, something or other. Uh, but most of the other ones, even if they're subtroke and they're high mechanism, I'm going to put them in a spiker. So this is probably one of those areas, just like that cortices study, where we all think we know the best approach for whatever reason. But in reality, there's lots of people doing it differently. So this is a study that tries to answer that question for how we make that decision. This is some that sort of technique I've been fascinated by for a while. And I was really excited to read the study. It's from Duke with lead author Anthony Catanzano, senior author Ben Allman, and the second senior author, uh, Chad Mather, is um, not a pediatric orthopedist, but in orthopedics in general is sort of the master of this kind of decision-making study, in my opinion. And the authors designed a tool that patients would use. They would sit there to be like a 10-question test, and it would help them decide if what their preferences are, how valuable each one is, and which treatment option they should get. So they use something called a conjoint analysis, which is from marketing. And the idea is that if you're in marketing and you're trying to figure out how much people value like a sweater and a suit and a dress and you ask them, people are notoriously terrible at making that estimate. They'll tell you something and then when they go in the store, that's not their values at all. So conjoint analysis shows people a series of choices and you choose between like this sweater and this dress versus this dress and this suit and then a different set of choices, and you compare back and forth. And in this study, they did it with a series of 10 questions where they would list sort of the risks, the pros and cons of each surgery. For example, one of the screens that they show in the study that uh, someone answering the survey would get, on one side, it'd be returned activities in two months, 20% chance of needing a second surgery, and uh, a partly dependent child. And on the other side of the screen, it would say, Returned activities in one month, 1% chance of needing a second surgery, a fully dependent child who needs to be in a wagon or wheelchair. And so you go through this series of 10 questions, and then at the end, it spits out, oh, you should pick this one. And then after it did that, it 
because it was a study, they weren't actually just using the tool. They showed the people taking the survey, according to this tool, these are your values and this is how much weight you put on each one of them. And then the survey respondents were like, yep, that checks out, that checks out and actually scored all those value rankings very highly. So in other words, they thought that this worked very well and matched what they wanted. And most people ended up uh, choosing a cast. I think it was about 80, 20 or so. But what's much more interesting and important than those numbers are the fact that this seemed to work, people seem to trust it, and that it is so potentially applicable to other areas in what we do. And this idea of having an objective way to do shared decision-making, not even shared at that point, just good decision-making is really fascinating to me. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, it's kind of like the um, end note of a decision analysis, because uh, at the end note of each of the decision analyses, you basically put a utility on the outcome, right? Which is uh, yep. relative to quality. So it's it's a very similar thing, um, but I've not heard that term used before. Uh, but I think it's awesome. And, uh, you know, if we can kind of do that for much more of uh, the things that we do, that would really help us, I think, be a lot more standardized with our decision making. And another cool aspect of it, the way they developed it, which is very easy and uh, replicatable, is they used Amazon Turk. So if you're not familiar with that, it's basically like you can go on Amazon and hire people to take surveys or do little tasks. So they would pay something like $2.50 per survey and get hundreds of people to take it and prove that it it matches their, you know, they they say you have to be over 18 and have kids or, you know, you, you match the, <laughs> the, the parent population you want but it was a, a very efficient way to generate this kind of tool. I love the idea of this study, and I, I think it's a really interesting idea. I think I have a hard time thinking, and I think this is a psychological question, right? But that the general population, not, you know, we all know that, that uh, people, when their kid is injured, behave very differently than they do uh, if they're taking surveys on Amazon. I think that's probably, you know, and they, and they discuss this in the paper, right? That, uh, but I, but I think um, that has, uh, this should be probably redone in a clinical setting because I'd be interested to see, um, you know, what the responses are differently for parents who are there next to their screaming child with a femur fracture on what they're actually going to choose. And I also think it's a little misleading to say that you're going to be able to return to sports and activities after a month. Uh, like oh, so it's not like a cast comes off. So it's yeah. not necessarily that the the things in the survey have to be have to correspond to the cast or the uh, or the flex nails. You're just trying the the system is trying to vet, figure out how much you value return to sports, and right. then if it if it decides you know you value that the most and this is how much how important it is to you, it helps you make a decision. Totally. So some then, some of the questions are like not realistic at all, like right twenty percent risk of return to the operating or one percent whatever. Right, and I think it does help people judge like the difference between those decisions. I just think that it would be very interesting to replicate this in a clinical setting uh, with more realistic. I think like what we all decide is the pros and cons of a cast versus surgery, right? And then of course I have to put in a plug that maybe cast isn't the only answer, right? That there there might be a brace option out there. Oh, the study is wow. clearly way behind the times. Wow, yeah. here we yes. go. Yes. Speaking of financial disclosures. <laughs> no, no, no uh, names were included. Um that was a lot of fun. Ben, thank you so much for joining us and uh, 
it's great to have the full cadre of uh, of hosts here tonight. I think it's been a while for all of us, so great to see everyone. And that was yep. really, really nice to participate. And uh, yeah, the time just flew by. How about that? Yeah, I hope we're gonna keep up, keep you up too late. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate you. Awesome. It's just nice to see you guys. Miss you. Yep. We're to the uh, fall meeting season kicking underway soon, so we'll get a chance to catch up in person soon, I hope. Excellent. Great. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ben. Take care, guys. Thanks,